I want to welcome you this morning, and good to be here with you. I ask, uh, invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I think we'll read the entire chapter since this is where our text is going to be taken from. For you who uh, were not here about a month ago or so when I uh, shared a message on a, a biblical exegesis on church discipline, uh, my intention was just to have one message, but uh, it, uh, I ended up having uh, two, so I'm going to share the second part this morning. But I believe it's a, it's a subject that needs attention and teaching. And so by God's grace, we want to do that. I know that it's easy for, it's, it, it's uh, maybe a little bit easier to pick subjects that bode well with us. And, uh, but if we're the biblicists that we say we are, then I think all scripture requires a uh, equal uh, attention. So that's what we want to do this morning, just as a follow-up on my previous message. Let's start reading in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For indeed, for I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to, the, to Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Verse 6, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with, the, with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or the extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside God judges, therefore put away from yourself the evil person." Let's pray. Father, again, as we look in your word, I'm just amazed again at how, how much clarity you bring to us and uh, just giving us practical instruction on how to do church. Lord, give us wisdom and understanding. Help our hearts to be open to receive what you have for us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. I just want to really briefly recap just a little bit of what we talked about in our previous message. 
particularly for those who were not here that Sunday. The first thing that we looked at was how God deals or how God dealt with disobedience in the Old Testament. Who can tell me what we talked about? How did God deal with sin, overt sin, particularly disobedience or rebellion in the Old Testament? Real quickly, stoning. And particularly, it says specifically that they were to take him outside of the camp, right? They were to move, remove them from the camp and stone them to death. Secondly, we looked at nine passages of Scripture in the New Testament that uh, deals with this subject. And thirdly, we looked at the, uh, we also looked at the passages of Scripture, particularly the one in Matthew 18. We drew a principle, a three-step principle, in this passage of Scripture and uh, had, uh, had uh, an illustration to go with that. The three-step process in Matthew 18, what's the first one? What's the first step in, the, in this principle? When there's an issue, what, what does Scripture tell us to do? Okay, so is this a public meeting? No, of course not. It's a private meeting, correct? It's you and him. You go to them or her one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. This is not, you're not supposed to call up your best neighbor and start gossiping about this. Scripture says if, if there's an issue, go to him and appeal to him. Second step, what's the second step in this process? Contingent on what? If he doesn't hear you. If he doesn't hear you in the first meeting, take one or two others with you and go talk to him. Now, we talked a little bit about the fact that, that the, you know, in all three of these steps, the goal is reconciliation. It's not punitive. The goal is reconciliation. And, and so because of that, we try to think of ways that will break down the barriers, not create walls. And so maybe one of the best ways to do this is to think of someone who he has or she has a lot of respect for and take that individual with you and uh, appeal to them. And possibly that will be better than if you take one of your friends with you and go and, and, and confront the situation. Because now the walls tend to go up when they see that you're bringing your best friend. But if you bring his best friend or her best friend and you come, uh, possibly that may be a way of breaking down the barrier. Third step. What's the third step? Okay, if they don't hear the second attempt, then it says we are to bring it before the local ch uh, uh, congregation, and we are to present this to the congregation at that point. Today's message, I want to center around this third step, because I think oftentimes this is where we have uh, not done well with uh, in the past. I want to look at this three-step process, uh, but particularly... In a, in a practical way, how this is lived out. I expressed a lament last time of the many ways that this teaching has been skewed 
and how it has been misused or not used. And, uh, and I, I concur that part of what is turning the, uh, the erroneous wheel is, is based on some historical event that, that lacked reconciliation. I'll get to that. But for you who don't care as much for history, bear with me. But I think this really is important in sort of this understanding our perception of this subject. So I want to give you a little bit of historical data as we, uh, before going into the, 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 the deeper content of this message. Under the, back in the, in the late 1600s, uh, after the Reformation had already begun happening, and the, if you recall that the Protestants had moved away from the Catholic Church, and then the Anabaptists moved away from the Protestants. So we're sort of twice removed there. After several years there of that forming, uh, there were some congregations. The Anabaptists had some congregations that were referred to as the Swiss Brethren Congregations. A very influential leader in that movement was Hans Reist, who uh, had quite a bit of influence, is sort of tagged with the giving a lot of leadership to the Swiss Brethren churches. Hans it is thought, not completely sure on this, but Hans uh, ordained a man, or we think he ordained a man, called Jacob Amon, who, um, uh, who was also part of this movement. Jacob, at some point in his life, moved over to France, which is just to the west in the... Uh, now I can't think of the uh, area in France. The uh, it starts with A. Yes, thank you. Alsace area, and uh, he sort of had some churches over in that area that he was giving leadership to. Somewhere along the way, in about nineteen or uh, sixteen ninety three, which would be about three hundred twenty three years ago. Uh, Jacob had some questions in which he wanted some clarification on some lightning rod issues of that day. Now, I want to just say that every generation deals with certain things that are what I would refer to as lightning rod issues of the day. Um, Some of the things that they dealt with back then are not as much of an issue today. And so we have our own. But back then, there were about three main things that Jacob Allman wanted some clarification on. He wanted clarification on the whole process of shunning and the ban, shunning those who had been in the ban. He felt like there should be shunning uh, with those who were placed outside of the fellowship. Another issue that he wanted some clarification on was whether there should uh, whether liars should be excommunicated, and the third one was whether people should be saved who do not follow God's word, and we can sort of see why that may have been sort of a lightning rod issue of that day because if you remember, they broke out of the Protestants and there was a lot of that Protestant influence there, and if you know the history of 
of Luther and particularly probably more uh, Calvin, John Calvin. I think it was uh, Laverne last Sunday uh, in his message said that Luther referred to the book of James as the book of straw. And uh, so in essence what he was saying is uh, he was uh, really heavy on the faith only side and possibly not quite as, as heavy on the obedience to the word of God. And maybe a bit of a reaction from the Catholic movement that they had just come from. <clears throat> so this was an issue. Now, these are three of the issues that, uh, that uh, Jacob wanted some clarification on. Um, but there were also several smaller matters that also surfaced. And one of those was the frequency of communion. At that time, they were only having communion once a, once a year probably based on the Passover is what I'm guessing, but he felt that there should be more, at least twice a year. And uh, another issue was uh, on just on church discipline uh, and how that should be conducted. And, and some of the lesser ones that he wanted some clarification on was the establishment of stricter regulations concerning dress and, can you believe it, uh, uh, regarding the beard as well. Now, those were probably lesser. The more prominent issue was, the, the prominent issue was number one, this whole thing of shunning those who were in the band. So he called for a meeting, and uh, they did have a meeting. Uh, Jacob and one of his co-pastors, uh, Nicholas Augsburg, uh, Augsburger, came from France over to Switzerland for this meeting, and uh, they, they were together at this meeting, and as Jacob was wanting to have some clarification on this, some of the Swiss brethren ministers were very sympathetic to Jacob's understanding of this whole idea of shunning and the banding, uh, those, or shunning those who were in the band. And uh, they were sympathetic to him, but, but, Hans Reist, uh, who ironically we think uh, originally ordained Jacob, uh, took a, a bold stand against Jacob. And he said, Jacob, you're, that's not right. You're, you're, that's not correct. And he openly opposed Jacob. Well, the, the, the meeting dispersed, uh, sort of unresolved. And later they called for another meeting, a second meeting. And that time Jacob brought along about six other, at least six other pastors with him. And they had the second meeting. And, but that time Hans Reis did not show up for the meeting. And it is said that he told them that he was too busy to come to the meeting. Jacob, upon hearing about that at the meeting, stood up and and promptly excommunicated Hans Reist on the spot. And, um, and later in the meeting, he, um, he, as they were talking further, he started pressing the other Swiss brethren, pastors, ministers that were there and wanted a statement from them on their position. Now remember that at the first meeting, the, some of the Swiss brethren pastors were lenient or leaning towards Jacob's point of view. But at this meeting, these pastors said, look, we're not prepared to give you an answer. And I'm putting some of these 
extra details in my own words, but we're not ready to give you an answer. We would like to go back to our congregations and get counsel from them before we come back with a statement of our position. We want to go back to our congregations. And Jacob Almon saw this as a turning back from their original position in the meeting before, a turning back and again, uh, openly excommunicated six more pastors at that meeting. Uh, it is said, history has it, that Jacob and his six co-pastors walked out of that meeting without shaking anyone's hand. And um, <clears throat> the excommunication created a definite breach with the Swiss Brethren movement, and it created, eventually created, two groups of people that today we refer to as the Mennonites and the Amish. Now, Hans Reist, even though and, and that movement was referred to originally as the Swiss Brethren. Uh, it is out of that branch there that the Mennonite church exists today. So we basically sort of have two groups of people that came out of that historical event. Now it's without doubt that Jacob Almond was a very a strong leader and he held passionately to some of his positions. It appears it, it's apparent that he acted quite rashly at those meetings. But it would be unfair for me to stop with the story at this point because it is also said that later on, Reist and his cohorts and the, the Swiss Brethren churches turned around and excommunicated Jacob Allman and his followers. So it went both ways. So both sides were guilty of overstepping clear scriptural instruction and the result is a schism that to some degree is still in effect today. 323 years later, isn't that sad? That pulpits between these two groups for the most part are not shared. Both are Anabaptists, both believe the Bible, both had a passion to follow Christ. And uh, basically, non-existent as far as fellowship on a fellowship level. Get together to do work projects. We work alongside of each other. Um, and that's good. But it definitely created a schism in these two groups. I also want to say, just for the records, that it was not soon after, just maybe it said within a few years. Within a few years, <coughs> numerous attempts were made um, by Jacob Allman and his brother um, Yuli, I think is his name, um, and some more pastors from, from, the, from Allman's, uh, from France there, that they made attempts to reconcile. In fact, Jacob went so far as to excommunicate himself. 
for his rash and uh, his, his rash uh, uh, decision that he made at that previous meeting. And he openly confessed that he had grievously erred. So we give him that credit. Uh, I'm not quite sure how you can excommunicate yourself, but he did. Um, so we give him that credit. Uh, the, unfortunately, it, the, 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 the damage was done. Uh, and even though they tried to reconcile, it just, it just never truly happened. Now, I bring out this historical data here because many of this congregation is deeply influenced from this schism right here. And just for interest's sake, now this is not to elevate anyone or to try to segregate anyone, but just for interest's sake, I would just like to see a show of hands this morning for anyone who is here present this morning that, that was Amish or your parents were Amish or your grandparents were Amish. And that includes horse and buggy Mennonite, that strain as well. Either you were Amish, your parents were Amish, or your grandparents were Amish. Let's see a show of hand who all this. Look around. Look around here. Okay, let's put those hands down and then let's just see the hands that this was not the case. You are not part of any, you or your, your parents or grandparents. Raise your hands. Okay, very lopsided here. So uh, again, I'm not trying to expose anybody here or, or this is not any, in any way one above another. Uh, just to show that that there's a lot here this morning that, that are affected by what took place 323 years ago. Now, lest we are tempted to look down our nose towards those of Almond's descent, let me just say that in some ways, the response of Menno Simons, or as we were when we were in... in uh, in Europe a couple of years ago and we did the uh, Anabaptist tour, they referred to him as Menno Simons, Menno Simons and Hans Reist. The, uh, the, the response of, of, of their descendants in some ways today are, are more unscriptural than those from Amun's descent. Mennonite USA today and those of like-minded faith do not even follow or attempt to follow, many of them do not even attempt to follow this teaching in Scripture. They have all but neutralized the church uh, and the church authority, and to some degree, I think, are further out on a limb than those of Almond's descent. So this morning, I want to call you back and ask one simple question. And that question is, what does the Bible say? Let's, let's lay aside all the influence that we've had in the past, if we can do that. And I know it's hard for us to do that because culture dictates culture. But let's try to set aside everything in the past and just go back to Scripture and say, what does Scripture say? I mentioned briefly in the last message that historically a greater error among conservative 
Anabaptist churches is how they have mishandled the Matthew 18 principle. And I think we only need to go back 323 years to understand maybe why we have misunderstood that and maybe why we haven't um, followed through with this uh, as well as what we should or could. I want to reiterate one of the important things. What does, Bible, what does the Bible say as we think of that question? I, I want to reiterate that in all three steps, I think this is very important that we grasp this, under, uh, the, this concept. In all three steps of Matthew 18, every step of that principle the brother or the sister that is in error is still considered to be a member and a brother of that congregation. Does that make sense? Unfortunately, many of the times, by the time we get to the third step of the Matthew 18 principle, we've already written that person off as a heathen. Too often it happens that way. But that is not the case. In, in, this, in, in this principle, they are still considered a brother in every step of this process. Um, in fact, Matthew 18 says, but if, and this is now talking about the third step, but if, I can't see the. Uh, if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. That verse insinuates, the insinuation is here that, that there is time for the church to appeal to this brother or the sister who is in error. The sentence is clearly a conditional given in the conditional verb form. The but if is the space of time between the second step of the principle and the time that he doesn't hear the church. Okay, so there is a space of time when the church also makes an appeal to the erring person. When we bring it to the congregation, we are not bringing it to make the decision of excommunication at that point, or we shouldn't be. We, and I'll lay it out very clearly what the steps are, but there is a period of time where the church also makes an appeal to the brother or the sister who is in error. Excommunication should not be issued without congregational appeal. Let me say that again. Excommunication should not be issued without congregational appeal. And what Jacob Almond did 323 years ago when he excommunicated his Swiss brothers on the spot was in scriptural error. I also say the same thing about Hans Rice's reactions or his actions. His excommunication of Almond's side was also in clear scriptural violation. And I'll take it another step and I'll just say that anyone of their descent or anyone else who has acted upon a similar vein uh, since that time is also in scriptural error. I'm not afraid to teach that. 
A congregation has a responsibility to make a similar appeal as the first two steps of this principle before any further step or action of action is taken. It is only after the congregation appeal goes unheeded that we move forward with the next uh, points of that instruction in Matthew 18 and other scriptures. Okay, so what about shunning? How, where, where does the shunning process happen? Do we shun before excommunication? Do we shun after excommunication? Do we shun before and after excommunication for a length of time until the ministers or the leaders determine that it should be lifted? Should shunning be for a lifetime? Or should shunning even happen at all? Is shunning scriptural? Yes or no? See one nodding head. Yes. Okay. Define shunning. Well, let's we'll, we'll let scripture define that. I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, not even to eat with such a person. Romans 16, 17, note that note those who cause divisions and offenses and avoid them. Titus 3.10, reject a divisive man. 2 Thessalonians 3.6, withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the traditions. Same chapter, verse 14, if anyone does not obey our word, note that person and do not keep company with him. 2 John chapter 1, verse 10, if anyone does not bring this doctrine do not receive him into your home, nor greet him. Is that defined as, does that define shunning? So is shunning scriptural? Yes, shunning is scriptural. Yes, it is. So the question we need to ask is, when does this take place? Okay. See, I shared this proposition with the ministers, so co-pastors, several years ago, and we're just sharing this as a as a position that that we feel is scriptural, and this has been. And by the way, part of this has become very clear to me. Um, I've always sort of had a um, I, I just always wondered about the way that I've seen excommunication being taken or being handled in the past. And, and about 10 years ago, I read Brother Val Yoder's book, uh, I Will Build My Church, and all of a sudden a light bulb went on. And it's, it's, it's in scripture. It's, it's so clear. If we just take the time to break it apart, which is what we want to do this morning, 
Uh, it, to me, it's a very clearly stated how this process happened. Yes, I want to lay a three-step principle or process how this works out. Let's go to the first one. Henry was correct. The first responsibility, there's three responsibilities of the church. Once it, once it comes to the level of the congregation, there's three steps in this process. The first one is the initial step of the congregation should be to meet for an extended period of mourning with prayer and fasting. Where do I get this from? Well, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> That's not real clear, is it? <clears throat> Verse 2 of, of 1 Corinthians 5, Paul in, in verse 1 is exposing the sin of the brother there in the Corinthian church who was living with his mother-in-law and, and was involved in sexual immorality there. And so he exposed the sin. And look what he says about it. He says, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So he's obviously realizes that the Corinthian church, he's reproving the Corinthian church for their arrogance and their twisted view of grace, which caused them to be tolerant toward the brother who was a sexual offender. They believed that a Christian freedom, a Christian's freedom should equal God's limitless grace. But the essence of that action actually acknowledge the lack of love that they had for that brother. No tear was shed for that kind of action. And the question that I think we need to ask ourselves, the question I needed to ask myself was, what is my response when someone starts going down the wrong road? How do I respond is, is my first response to jump on the phone and start gossiping about it to my best friend? Or do I just turn a blind eye and just allow that person to sort of fizzle out of church without any attempt to rescue them? Is that the extent of what we have to offer as a body? And the question I have to ask is, how many times have we cried for an individual? who is heading down Satan's highway? I think it's, a, it's a, a worthy question to ask ourselves. How many times have I cried about that? Val Yoder, in his book, says, it is lamentable that people can fall out of our churches with not one tear being shed, no meetings, uh, no meals being lost, and work going on as usual. Is there any condition that merits prayer and fasting that is certainly, sorry, if there is any condition that merits prayer and fasting, this is certainly one of them. This should take place with the spontaneity and the rapidity of a funeral. This past week, Daryl and Leora lost a parent and uh, last week, the, the week before, and the funeral was this past week. Am I correct? <laughs> oh, okay, sorry, yeah. Uh, I took off of work to go sit with their own Leora. And rightly so. Why shouldn't I with that loss? And I know many of you did. Maybe not take off work, but at some point in the journey, you sat and mourned with their own Leora and their family. 
for the loss that they experience. What about those who are dying spiritually? Shouldn't that cause even greater attention from us? We're talking about we're talking about eternal consequences here. And well, Val goes on to say, could it be that the level of compassion, compassionate care for one another is so dry-eyed, schedule-bound, and self-centered that many pass out of our fellowships with hardly a second look by the other members. And I say, God, help us. Do we truly care that little? Could someone slip into the clutches of Satan and simply fizzle out of church life and we keep going our merry way, coming together every Sunday, raising our hands in worship to the Lord Sunday after Sunday while our brother or sister is slipping into a Christless eternity? Is this the extent of our care? I certainly hope not. And I just want to publicly commit myself to use the congregation as your pastor. And I think I speak for, our, for my co-pastors. I truly believe I, I know their hearts. That we are committed to lead our congregation in appropriate amounts of time, mourning, times of mourning, when we face this kind of situation. Mourning for our brother's spiritual condition is the first responsibility of a congregation. So when, I want to be very clear about these steps. When we would face, or if we would face this kind of situation, and steps one and two were taken care of, and we would be heading into the third step, Here's the process that the pastors would call for a public meeting with the local congregation to present the situation, to use a congregation. Now, I want to just interject here that if you were not directly involved in this situation, when the pastors bring this to your attention, Whatever the case may be, it may come to you as a shock, depending on the situation. And I know that there has been in the past some, some offense with that, that we bring this situ- or a situation to you, and you were totally unaware of this whole thing, and it just sort of comes as a blast to you. Well, can I suggest that rather than being offended about that, <laughs> rejoice in the fact that it is quite possible that the reason you didn't find out is because the Matthew 18 principle was applied. If we follow the steps of Matthew 18, only a, few, only a handful of people would know it at that point. So, so it's okay if you're not aware of it. <laughs> That's really according to scripture, how it should be. At this meeting, the pastor should lead the congregation in times of prayer. I think corporate prayer and, uh, and then just uh, in the days to follow, uh, just encouragement for prayer and fasting. Now, obviously, we don't have any time frame. Scripture doesn't put that out there. 
Um, but, and I think each situation will vary from one to the other. But ideally, I would say that this, this period should possibly last or not exceed one or two weeks where the church is committed to just pray and intercede. And during that time, going and being very clear with the person who is in the air and conveying to that person that we as a congregation are committed to praying and interceding to the Lord and fasting for his repentance. I don't think I'll ever forget what happened, and some of you are, are, are unaware of this situation, but there are some of you that are here that recall the situation with Joe Fry. And um, he had made some very bold um, uh, decisions. And um, we came together as a congregation one Wednesday evening with his knowledge of it. And I told him, Joe, we are coming together to pray and cry out to the Lord for your repentance. And we did that. We came together. We prayed together. We cried out to the Lord together. We were committed for the next week to pray for him. The very next morning, he came to work on his initiative. That boy was sobbing his heart out. He said, I, I, I have to change my ways. I have to amend my ways. And, and uh, I'm convinced it was the prayers that we prayed that night. Uh, Eli Hosteller took him, drove down an hour and a half to move him back again, uh, and and he did a 180. He has made bad choices since then, but uh, I am when I saw that happen, I said, you know what? God's ways work. Now, will every situation be that way? No, obviously not. We're not, we're not guaranteed that that's why we have further steps, okay? God understands that every person has their choice and they may not always repent. And that's why we have other steps to follow through. But this should be the first one. <clears throat> the second one. The second responsibility. If repentance is not forthcoming, after this public meeting and this time of prayer, the church should then place the erring member under special censure from the group. Verse 11 says, I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. Okay, so... So shunning has to happen before excommunication. We don't judge those who are of the world. That's exactly what he said. If we would go on to read the next portion of that, of, of that verse there. Um, verse 12 says, For what have I to do with judging those who are on the outside? We don't, we don't shun, we don't ban those who are on the outside. So the shunning has to happen while he is still considered to be a brother. Now, the next step, or this step, is where normal social interaction 
should discontinue. And like I said, this happens while he is considered a brother, before excommunication, while the erring person is still committed or considered to be a member of the body. Why is this step so necessary? Why would we shun someone who is still considered to be a brother? Remember, the goal of this whole process is reconciliation. We are trying to win this person back. We're trying to help him see the air of his way. And we are now coming up to the very sort of the last attempt. It's sort of like the last effort that we can put out there to help him make a right decision. Two reasons why I think it's important that we follow through with this process. First one is so that the person would be made ashamed of their sin and hopefully return to repentance to the fellowship. First, or Second Thessalonians, and we read that this morning. 3 verse 14, it says, Do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Now, up until this point, we're not asked to, to, sh- to shame him for his actions. First and second step of, of Matthew 18, your goal is not to shame him. In fact, if you remember the first step, we had instructed that we are to, the first, when you had that first initial meeting, you're, you have two objectives. <laughs> One is to make sure that you hear his side and his position. The second one is to convey love in the midst of the reproof. We can't just give love. We also need to reprove if he's truly an heir. So um, we need to be very clear on this. But the second reason is also that the loss of connectedness is the strongest level of pain and love that can be felt in the body of Christ. The loss of connectedness. I don't think we should ever conclude that love never causes pain. Our contemporary culture who says live and let live is outraged by this kind of action. On the other hand, the traditional religious groups that have exercised this improperly are also guilty of turning people against this biblical instruction. So a united church that speaks truth in love is the most likely to restore a fallen brother. Look at what verse 5 says. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his soul may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The goal is reconciliation. In other words, this act of discipline is the last-ditch effort to reach the fallen brother. Restoration should always be our ultimate goal. When someone is no longer, uh, no longer has the protection of the church around him, they are at the disposal of Satan's clutches whose goal, whose ultimate goal, is to kill, steal, and to destroy. 
And so being placed outside of that protection of the church may be the best way for the offender to recognize his or her sin and repent before it is eternally too late. That's exactly what God did in the Old Testament when they were disobedient and stubborn and rebellious. Place them outside of the, te- of the, of the, of the, uh, of the uh, camp. And that's what we're doing. We want them to feel the sting of not being connected. Again, we don't have any length of time, no instruction on the length of time that this should take place. I, I, again, I would just say probably every situation is different. I would probably sort of have an, 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 a, you know, a time frame of maybe three to four weeks. So from the time that the church is first starting to pray, hopefully even before that if you're aware of it, but when it's brought to the church, you know, it could be a month or two, that time frame in there. Um, but I think the most important thing is that the church's intent is clearly conveyed to that individual. Now, there is another dimension that I I feel is necessary for us to talk about uh, when it comes to this process because I believe that that it is of utmost importance that this, this process, this step right here, this shunning process is practiced by the entire church. I think its effectiveness will be severely hindered if there are certain individuals that will cuddle the grievance of the unrepentant or divisively defend the errant brother or or member in their sin. So this can really be counterproductive. However, I'm also aware that there are other principles that should not be circumvented during this time. Take, for instance, the call for children to honor their parents or a spouse to love and respect their husband or their their partner family members by virtue of being part of the body of Christ who has made this decision to set them aside uh, are called to support the church but at the same time show the love and the respect that God calls them to give in these kinds of relationships. Now this can be extremely difficult when there is a double principle going on. Take for instance a wife who has a husband that is living in sin and she is called by virtue of her maternal or matrimonial covenant to honor and respect and to submit to his leadership. And if this couple has children, they're called to honor and to obey their father in this situation. And so there's a double principle going on here. They're committed to the church. The church has taken a stand, and yet they have this other side here that is also playing into the factor. And uh, a family in this situation needs a lot of support from the congregation and a lot of understanding. Um, 
I think we need to give them our support, let them know we care, give them room to make mistakes. And so I think we need to be aware of this potential here and to consider that. The last step in this process then that we have is that if this point there is still no repent, response of repentance, the church is then called to officially place that person outside the parameters of the local fellowship by excommunication. And I would go to verse 12 and 13 for that. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourself the evil person. This is the first time in this whole process that he or she is no longer considered to be a brother or a sister in the church. The church has been given this mandate to make this call, this judgment. And um, it is at this point that they are now considered and treated as any other person in the world. What does that mean? That means that the shunning is removed. We don't judge those who are outside. We know that a, a lifelong ban is unscriptural. And um, we treat them as we would any other person. Now, hopefully as a Christian, uh, your deepest and the fondest interaction, social interaction, are with others who are like-minded faith. That's where we should have our greatest level of friendship and relationships. But as Christians, we should also be nurturing and fostering other relationships with people who are not born again. And uh, so we invite them into our home. That's the best way that we can show them Christ's love. So a lifelong ban is not scriptural. <clears throat> a while ago, I did a 15-part message on the Church of Jesus Christ. And in my concluding message, I used the passage in Matthew chapter 16. And I focus primarily on verse 19 where it says, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Ironically, the last me message that Jake had, uh, it was entitled the, kingdom, the Keys of the Kingdom of Heaven, in which he talked about a three-legged stool. <clears throat> Remember that? The three-legged stool of of the canon, the creed, and the apostate, or, uh, episcopate, or the pastors, and how that must be kept in balance. One of the things that I said in, in the message I shared on the kingdom keys, <clears throat> and I'll just read verbatim of what I had in my notes. Jesus is giving church authority to a local body of believers to make corporate decisions as long as it does not violate scripture. 
And when that decision is made in the context of a local fellowship, a local group of believers, that is the way that it stands in the records of heaven. I never noticed it before. Well, I never put the dots together. I noticed it, but I never put the dots together. That's in chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16. And what's that con- what was that conversation about in Matthew 16 when Jesus talked about the kingdom keys? What was the context? It's where Jesus had asked them, who do men say that I am? Peter made that great confession. You are Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father, which is in heaven, And I say to you, upon this rock, I will build my church on the confession that Jesus made that you are Christ, the son of the living God. Upon that rock, that confession, I will build my church. And then he goes right into it and he says, what you bind on earth. He's now talking about the church. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. And in essence, what he's saying, I'm giving you authority to make some decisions. Not everything is spelled out in in Scripture. I'm giving you some latitude, some leeway. And that makes sense to me. And all of a sudden, as I was was studying chapter 18, I, I just, I never put it together. As soon as he finishes up with the third step in, in the Matthew 18 principle, he says, assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. And I think what God is saying, I believe what, what Jesus was saying here is that the person makes the choice. <laughs> the person makes the choice. He, we, the church does not force any choice on an individual. He chooses whether he's going to be repentant or not. But at some point when he is unrepentant, the church makes the choice, the decision, to excommunicate that brother or sister. And what is bound on earth, God now looks at it the same way in heaven. Wow, that's a lot of responsibility. So we don't take this lightly. We don't take this lightly. This is, not, this is not a small matter. But it's like God is saying, I'm waiting for you to make the decision. I mean, ultimately, the, the person makes the choice but, and the church acts upon that choice. But when the church acts upon it, God is saying, that's the way I'll look at it. Let's pray, and then Keith, I'm going to ask you to close. Father, thank you so much for your kindness, your goodness, your love, your mercy. We're so grateful, Father, for the clarity of Scripture that you bring to us. And uh, Lord, forgive our ways of having botched this principle so many times. And just a new commitment and a new zeal to follow through with the way that you've laid it out, knowing that it's the best possible way. And we know that that it may not always turn out the way that we hope or the way that we wish. But Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would empower us as a congregation right here at Berea to exercise the authority that you have vested upon us, not in a rash way, not in an uncaring way, but to out of, out of love for you, first of all, and love for our brothers, 
to exercise the authority that you've given to us in a proper way. Commit ourselves to you, guide and direct us. In your name we pray, amen.